0: Welcome to episode 47 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France.
1: And I'm Doc Shauna Springer.
0: And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military affiliated population. Check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store. You can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes. Check out the show notes and share the episodes with somebody who you think might want to hear it. When we talk about the impact of suicide on service members, veterans, and their families, quite often the conversation includes a discussion of a comparative issue in first responders. There are many service members, like today's guest and my own father, who left the military, became police officers, firefighters, paramedics, or other first responders. Shauna?
1: Yes. So Michael Sugru began his law enforcement career in the United States Air Force as a security forces officer in 1998. Michael honorably separated from the Air Force as a captain in 2004. Immediately after the Air Force, Michael was hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department. He was awarded the Walnut Creek PD Distinguished Service Medal in 2014 for his heroic and life-saving actions during a fatal officer shooting in 2012. Michael became devoted to suicide prevention after his best friend, a Vietnam veteran and reserve police officer, tried to kill himself while he was on duty. At that time, Michael himself had been in a downward spiral due to post-traumatic stress injury and was purposely putting himself in dangerous situations at work, hoping he would die in the line of duty. His best friend's suicide attempt was his personal wake-up call to get the courage to finally ask for help for four years of suffering and almost losing it all. Let's hear what he has to say.
0: Yeah, so I'm glad that uh, we were able to have Michael come on the show to bring that perspective of both law enforcement and as a veteran. So we'll get into my conversation with him and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. Really appreciate to have you come on the show to give your perspective, both as a service member who served in a law enforcement role in your role in the Air Force and then your role as a law enforcement officer, first responder and post-military life to talk about your perspectives on mental health in general. Yes, but specifically on suicide. Is this something that you, looking back to your active duty time, something that you saw while you were on active duty service member deaths by suicide?
2: I did see a very small percentage of it, but it was nothing like what I see in the civilian side. That also could have been due to the fact of my timing in the military. My active duty time was from 98 till 2004. And I really think that the suicide numbers they really spiked later on after I got out of the military, largely, in fact, due to Afghanistan and Iraq and and what's gone on there for so many years and is still going on there. So my personal experience, I did see a very small percentage of that while on active duty, but most of my experience is actually in the civilian side, both with just the general public, but law enforcement officers and also dealing with military members who are now out of the military and are part of the general public.
0: And that's something a lot of people don't consider is the aftermath of suicide, right? And often first responders, law enforcement, paramedics, fire department, they're the ones that are called when there's an emergency. And sometimes when that emergency is a death by suicide, you walk in and and you can tell almost immediately exactly what happened. And that's got to be a burden for law for first responders.
2: It is. Just by you saying what you just said, I can think back to a specific example that happened towards the end of my career. And it was a report of a man with a gun. And he was outside a medical office in the city that I worked in. And we all went code three, got there as fast as we could. And by the time we got there, he had just shot himself in the head. And I literally was the first one there and the gun was still smoking. That's how fresh it was it literally just happened and had been there any sooner I probably would have witnessed it myself and to this day and we're talking this is probably over 10 years ago I still have the images in my head I've got the smells from the gunpowder it's just locked in my brain and that's one example of I've probably been to over at least 50 suicides if not more and, and I could go through the key ones that just stick out to this day. And they've definitely had a long lasting effect on me.
0: And this is something, again, that maybe not a lot of people consider is the people that someone's most likely to come in contact with someone who is in crisis is someone in a first responder role. And yes, now I'm certain that a lot of forces around the nation are absolutely receiving training on that, but not really considering the psychological toll on the officers just witnessing that and then combining that with your military service and then your law enforcement service can create a lot of complications.
2: Absolutely. And what the general public doesn't realize that if we arrive on scene and we actually witness a suicide, that is a protocol incident. That's a critical incident. And that is treated just like an officer-involved shooting. And so we Get sequestered, we go through the interview process. It's identical to being involved in officer shooting. And so, even just going through that aspect of a loan, you have to relive this experience over and over. I mean, the county where I worked in, we had what's called a coroner's inquest. And same thing, if you're involved in a suicide, maybe five, maybe six months later, you have to go to court and testify in an open courtroom about what happened may turn it to other things down the road whether it be lawsuits or other investigations but these incidents for multiple reasons just go on and on and on and you cannot get them out of your head I mean, they absolutely have a long lasting impact
0: so when this adds to the stress this is more stones in the bucket or whatever metaphor you want to use if someone a veteran in as like yourself a lot of veterans do go on, medics become paramedics or EMTs or something like that. And I think I have probably five or six of the troops that I was with in Afghanistan that are either highway patrol or Colorado State Patrol or, or law enforcement in some way, shape or form. And first responders is a natural and often even an appreciated next step after military service, but you bring everything you had from the military service into law enforcement, and then you're experiencing stress like that, your message is that often it can become overwhelming.
2: Absolutely. And, and here's the interesting thing about what you just said, and, and in fact, and I work with firefighters, paramedics, law enforcement, and there is a large percentage of that are prior military. And I, I immediately go back to when I was getting out of the military and I wanted to go into law enforcement. And when you're doing that, you're applying for new jobs, you're going through background processes, you're going through medical screenings, maybe psychological screenings. And oftentimes you don't want to share or relive what happened in the military because you're trying to forget about that and you're trying to move on and get this new career and basically have a fresh start. But the reality is there is no fresh start. All those things that you experienced that made you who you are at that time and today. And those experiences don't go away. Now, I do think they help you in the fact that when you're operational, and operational is the key word I wanna use, when you're operational, just like when you're in the military and you're actually deployed or you're in combat, you're in what I call the zone. And you have the mindset and you just do. You don't even think about it. You're so well-trained, you've been through it. You just act, you get it done, and you don't think about it. But what happens is when things slow down, and you're not working, you're not operational, let's say you're out on injury, whether that be physical injury or mental injury, now you have nothing but time on your hands. And now you have this time to go back and relive and rethink about all this trauma and repeated trauma that you've been exposed to for many cases, 20, 30 plus years.
0: And this is having an impact on suicide in the first responder population. Obviously, we're having a national conversation around veteran suicide. We've been having it maybe not as long as we should have been, but really since 2012 or 2013, but we're not having a national conversation around first responder suicide, which given the proportion of numbers is just as significant.
2: It is, and and here's the facts. The the bottom line is as first responders, firefighters, paramedics, police officers, we are much more likely to die by our own hands than the hands of another. And that is a fact. The numbers, although I say they're largely underreported, but they are starting to get better reporting uh, due to groups like Blue Help, who has been instrumental, at least for the law enforcement side. Um, I believe up to this year right now, we're up to 103 just law enforcement suicides. For last year, we had 228 And the year before that, we had 174. And those numbers, they should be shocking. They're shocking to me. Just the fact that as first responders, we always think that we're gonna get killed by some bad guy with a gun. That's what we think. We're in the police academy. We think that's how we're gonna go out. That's how it's gonna happen. We never think that we're gonna take our own life. It's not talked about. It's not focused on. And when you think about that, Just the fact that we're more likely to die by our own hands, that tells you that we do need to focus on it. We do need to make it a priority. We do need to train it in the academy, in the field training program, in reoccurring training every single year. It needs to be, in my opinion, a number one priority.
0: And as you said, those numbers are sobering, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head for each of the individual military services, but they're about the same, if not lower than that nationally, just for the police force. And that's something that, again, this is something that we're having all these conversations around veteran suicide, and there's this silent issue going on in our first responder services. But also one of the things that draws a lot of service members to the first responder corps is a shared set of values and a shared ethos and a desire to help people. But that also comes along with the shared stigma against reaching out for help for all of the same reasons that we didn't reach out for help and say we're going to to the shrink in the military are the same reasons that we don't do it when we're in the first responder space.
2: Absolutely. As a soldier, when you're in combat, you have to believe that you're invincible. You have to believe that you're going to get the mission done and you're going to come back home knowing that you may die, but you still press on. As law enforcement same thing we have to go into the most dangerous situations whether it be an active shooter situation a possible robbery a domestic violence call it could be just a traffic stop but all those scenarios all those situations are potentially lethal and deadly but yet we go into them with no fear we're operational and we have to do the job and we build this almost superhuman image of ourself and it's part of our survival when we put that vest on, that badge, our gun belt on, we truly feel like we're superheroes and we're invincible. And the reality is that we're not. We're human just like everybody else. We can die. We can be injured. And people don't think about that. And so that's where the stigma comes into is that what I found, and, and I'm speaking about my own personal experience, which prevented me from getting help for far too long, is that I was ashamed I was embarrassed, and as a former Air Force officer and now a police sergeant, I had fear that if I asked for help, people were going to look down on me, they were going to see me as weak, they weren't going to want to work with me, they weren't going to follow me, and I I just felt like I was alone and by myself. I felt like there was no alternatives and that I had to just basically suck it up, pretend everything was okay, and just press on, and when I did that, it made things Far worse. My personal life went downhill. My professional life went downhill. Isolating, drinking far too much, destructive behavior, putting my officer safety aside at work, but purposely putting myself in dangerous situations, knowing that I'm not using the officer safety that I was trained for. Hoping, because I hoped that something happened to me when I was on duty. I never thought about actively taking my own life, but. The truth is, I didn't care if I died on duty. In fact, I wanted to because I would have been a hero. If I died on duty, I'm going to be a hero. I'm never going to be forgotten about. And people are going to look up to me. If I die by suicide, people aren't going to look up to me. They're going to think I'm a coward. No one's going to remember me. And that's the mentality that I had. It was that I'm going to go to work. And if I don't come home today, that's okay. I really don't care.
0: And again, everything that you just said if you change the the word police officer to veteran, every veteran listening to this show would absolutely recognize that or change the word veteran in a lot of our conversations to firefighter. And and it's so common. It's so natural. But you got to a point where something significant happened in your life, which caused you to reach out for help.
2: I did. I had been involved in a fatal officer shooting. I had then gone through years of depositions. I was sued federally. I lost my marriage. I, I was at my end. And I was having these thoughts that I just talked about and my federal trial had just ended. It took almost four years to go to federal trial and I was on trial in San Francisco uh, for two weeks. We did prevail and I magically thought when that trial was over that this huge weight was going to be lifted off my shoulders, that all my problems were going to magically go away and that I was going to go back to that person I was before my shooting, but it didn't happen. I absolutely spiraled And about a month and a half later, about a week after Thanksgiving, my best friend, who is a Vietnam veteran, he was an Army MP in Vietnam. After that, he served 35 years as a reserve officer with my department. We were actually partners. He tried to take his life on duty when I was working. And I just saw him when he got to the the hospital before they were rushing him to surgery. And I thought he was going to die. Thank God he didn't. He's alive today. I still see him every week for lunch, but he saved my life. I tell him that every time I see him because that was going to be me. And when I saw the devastation and the impact of just the attempt and him almost dying in front of me, that impact alone, I told myself, I can't do that to my daughter. I can't do it to my family. And about a month after that, I mustered up the courage. I I say courage because it was the hardest and most courageous and bravest thing I've ever done in my life was I reached out to my watch commander and I asked for help.
0: See, and that's one of those things that um, seeing that, recognizing that. We talk about our older veterans. You talk about your best friend. My father was a Vietnam veteran. He was a correctional officer. He uh, left the military And he became a St. Louis city cop in the 70s. So we don't know where PTSD from one ended and the other one began. And in early 2000, we experienced the same thing with him. And fortunately, we were able to get him the help that he needed before it even got to that space. But this isn't even something that is happening with veterans of our generation. This is happening with veterans of the Vietnam generation, the Korean War generation. Again, this pattern of leaving the military, going to another profession that has similar ideals, but then continuing to carry that weight and continuing to carry that stigma is possibly a lethal combination.
2: It absolutely is. And like you said, it's affecting all generations, all levels. It's still not talked about. I know that for veterans, I see a lot of things put out by the VA. I see things on social media. I think they've gotten better. I still deal with the VA and I actually talk to veterans as well, but I think there's so much more work to be done because the truth is, again, it's the stigma. It's the stigma that's preventing people from saying, I need help because they think it's weakness. It's absolutely not weakness. One thing I advocate, which I think is a game changer, is people say PTSD and that D For disorder, that's the problem right there. And I know we have to have it for now. It's in the DSM. It's what the psychologists use and the psychiatrists use. But I prefer injury, PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. And the facts are that there's a physical injury that occurs to the brain, and it's as the result of repeated or prolonged exposure to traumatic incidents and events. And that's the whole issue. As a law enforcement officer, when I hear disorder, I automatically think of a negative connotation. Here in California, we have a welfare institution code. It's called 5150. And that's what they call crazy people, quote unquote. Those are people that are gravely disabled or a danger to themselves. And we deal with this on an almost daily basis as law enforcement officers. I have 5150 hundreds of people. It's a daily occurrence. And so we have this automatic negative connotation when we talk anything to do with mental health. And the facts are, those are two very different things. And by asking for help, you're not 5150. You're not crazy. You have an injury to your brain And you need to get help. It's no different than if a police officer injures their shoulder, their back, or their knee, which those are the three most common, probably physical injuries that law enforcement officers experience. And there's a high percentage that do over a 30-year career. How many of those officers do you think experience a mental injury caused by trauma? And I can tell you those numbers are far underreported.
0: As many, if not more of them experience it, and very few of them report it. You're absolutely right. Michael, I I think that having your perspective of this from the military perspective, just the impact of what suicide has on individuals, but then your own personal story of needing to overcome this, it's not just a veteran issue, it's not just a military issue, it's a national issue. And I appreciate you coming on the show to talk about it.
2: That's my absolute pleasure.
0: No, I appreciated Michael coming on the show because he had some very sobering points about the impact that suicide has, not just on individuals, but really the entire community.
1: Right. You know, for Michael and for many first responders and veterans, suicidal ideation is the threat they don't see coming. As Michael mentioned, the expectation in the law enforcement community is that the threat will be external, that you'll be taken out by a bad guy, not by your own hand the emergence and growth of suicidal ideation is often a very private battle for many of our first responders. There's a culture within first responders that promotes the sense you can't trust or go to people, that every contact you make is risking your livelihood, your reputation, everything. And this drives this battle into a deeply dangerous private place. Michael and I are going to work on a book to bring forward his stories and a series of insights to help first responders get better traction in recognizing and addressing feelings of suicidal ideation, the threat that is so often in their blind spot otherwise.
0: Yes, I think that's one of the things when it comes to trust, you have to feel like you're not alone. That's really the, the, the key is that someone is in this with you. And yes, that means a provider or a significant other or a trusted friend. But also in the way that Mike is trying to tell his story, it gives other individuals who have experienced this the feeling that they're not alone, which is also a, a different measure of trust.
1: Yes, Michael and I are going through the process of thinking about the topics that we want to take on for this book. And one of the things that we want to unmask is that many who die by suicide in the first responder community die in the line of duty in ways that are masked. For instance, a misfire that occurs while cleaning guns, a car accident involving a patrol car, in the chaos of a dangerous law enforcement encounter. Addressing a problem starts with speaking about it truthfully. If a police officer starts going down this path in his or her mind and they start thinking about ways to organize a line of duty death, even playing with fantasies, this is a dangerous sign and should be recognized as such. Of course, the other part is providing truly safe ways for members of the LEO community to get help without fear that they will be sidelined.
0: That's something that I've often heard. I actually, was just having a conversation with a colleague about this the other day. That's the same thing in in the special forces community. And it's even perpetuated by the individuals who are left behind in the special operations community. I recall there were a couple of suspicious deaths or or something like that. One was uh, someone who was at dive school, I think in Florida, ended up walking off a pier and drowning. And everyone said, well, he must have been drunk. Another was, uh, again, cleaning a, a firearm accident as if Green Berets clean their firearms with with a loaded chamber. It's one of those things where out of respect, out of honor, out of, and not just saving face for the community, but not wanting to tarnish the name of the individual, there's this desire to not call it what it is in order to save reputation or, or even really to assuage your own guilt, perhaps.
1: Yeah, and also, you know, people... I think calculate how is this going to impact the pension I might receive, the benefits I may receive. What they don't calculate for is the collateral damage that suicide does and the devastating, lasting damage for those that they love who would do anything to have them with them, to have them stay in the fight. That is where people have a blind spot. And so Michael is a great example of how this worked because he was going down that path in his mind, trying to organize a hero's death is the way I think about it. And then his best friend attempted suicide while his best friend was on duty. He was a reserve police officer. And that was the deterrent. That pain that Michael felt from nearly losing his best friend was the powerful deterrent that turned Michael From those thoughts and put him on a path to asking for the help he needed and moving towards wellness. And so sometimes I think. We're not aware of how painful that kind of loss can be, and it really is important to weigh that against the thought that you're better off or others are better off, because that's just the fundamental lie that drives suicidal thinking.
0: Absolutely, and I think like many different things, shining a light on it, getting the conversation out into the open is absolutely a way to do that. So we appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at bettermentalhealth.com forward slash STM. STMSS47, or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Stores. In the show notes, you can get the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show notes on MilitaryTimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash group you can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing by checking out my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror, Mental Health and Wellness in Post-Military Life. Both are available on Amazon, and we'll have links to them in the show notes.
1: Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician.
0: And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1, chatting online with them at VeteranCrisisLine.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution. And make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest episodes. Join us next time for another great conversation. And until then, remember, you're not alone ever.